0: You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. This is The Rowan Report Presents The True Crime Collective with Carly Murray. This episode, will discuss the arrest of a suspect in the murders of four University of Idaho students, the subsequent public and media reaction, historical comparisons, and some safety tips for college students here at Rowan. The country has been shocked over the gruesome murders of four University of Idaho students in November. 20-year-old Ethan Chapin, 21-year-old Madison Mogan, 20-year-old Zana Kernodle, and 21-year-old Kaylee Gonzalves were brutally stabbed in off-campus housing. For a little over a month, there were not any suspects announced to the public and the University of Idaho community, as well as college students and parents across America, were left terrified. Shortly before school was expected to resume for the spring semester, law enforcement announced a suspect. The current evidence that has been released does not identify the suspect as having any prior relationship to any of the victims. 28-year-old Ph.D. criminology student Brian Koberger attended Washington State University, a short distance away from Moscow, Idaho. When he was first named as the primary suspect in these murders on December 30th and then arrested, there was not much information released. As he was extradited to Idaho from Pennsylvania, he and the public awaited the evidence that law enforcement had against him, which is that he allegedly was a DNA match to a knife sheath found at the scene of the crime. Officials retrieved Koberger's DNA from the trash outside of his Pennsylvania home, according to the affidavit. Sources also claim that cell phone data shows that he allegedly watched the victims for weeks before the crime, and witnesses matched his vehicle to surveillance footage. Koberger's public defender said that Koberger was surprised by his arrest and denies any involvement. The public got to see the video in which he was pulled over and he was obviously under law enforcement's radar because he was stopped twice for traffic violations. He was in the car with his father and police asked where he was going. He kept insisting that they were going for Thai food, purposefully vague and indignant. His father cuts in and explains that they came from Idaho to which Coburger gives him an annoyed look. As any case of this magnitude in the modern era, Social media has erupted with theories, claims, and former acquaintances of the suspect. This is definitely an example of the pros and cons of new media in crime reporting. Although the world now has access to constant information and potential sources, the rumors circulating could easily be made up and a lot of evidence doesn't come out until the trial. My TikTok algorithm is obviously a lot of true crime and this case is the dominating headline. So I have seen claims of former students taught and graded by Coburger as a TA for his criminology program, unverified recordings of him discussing the murders as a true crime project, and even a former Tinder date that has been covered by multiple news outlets. Witnesses have also claimed that Koberger would make women at a local bar uncomfortable by asking questions such as, do you live alone and where do you live? New evidence revealed that he followed the three women that he murdered on Instagram and messaged one repeatedly, although they are not yet revealing who, and she did not respond. We do not know yet if she saw or read the messages or if maybe she never saw them because direct messages from strangers can be hidden on Instagram. Sources also claim that he went to the restaurant where two of the victims worked, Mad Greek on South Main Street. It is very eerie to get an idea of possible motivations, as a lot of recent crimes in the last few years have been retaliation for rejection. This is of course not verified, but it aligns with the online incel culture that has recently emerged and encouraged violence towards women in an online community, and has been the new model for crime notoriety. It was also released that Koberger had a history of disturbing posts on the internet as a teenager, since everything is on the internet forever nowadays. He confided in friends and posted online that he was suffering from a condition known as visual snow, which is a neurological condition that caused him to see static and spots that he attributed to his dissociation from personal connections and emotions. He posted, as I hug my family, I look into their faces, I see nothing, it is like I am looking at a video game. He also posted it is as if the ringing in my ears and the fuzz in my vision is simply all of the demons in my head mocking me. This was reported by the New York Times as well as evidence that Koberger was in rehab for heroin addiction before returning to his studies. According to James Fallon, a neuroscientist and UC Irvine professor of psychiatry and human behavior, heroin addiction could have led to this neurological condition and its dissociative effects. He stated that this disorder is characterized as hyperstimulated neurons and may cause a depersonalization symptom. Other symptoms can be migraines and lapses in empathy. Fallon also pointed out that it is interesting that Koberger was self-aware of these symptoms within himself as he studied them. Koberger is also said to have applied for a fall 2022 internship with the local police department. This has not been verified by the Pullman Police Department in Moscow, Idaho. This is a common precedent to alleged and convicted killers where they attempt to befriend local law enforcement to avoid suspicion and to attempt to obtain inside information about crime in the area. As a criminology student, many might wonder why this suspect was named and unable to avoid apprehension. If Koberger is the killer, which we can't officially determine until it has been decided in court, the crime was constructed to make headlines more than it was about covering it up. We have witnessed murderers over decades who embrace their criminality when the press focuses on them and go to extremes to shock the public. The victims in this case were young and attractive, but still relatable because they seemed to be normal college kids exploring their freedom, which they should have been able to do without the fear of looking over their shoulders. Many have heard the phrase missing white women's syndrome in regard to the disappearance and murder of Gabby Petito, which equates to the fact that victims who are usually blonde, attractive white girls and women receive much more coverage than any other demographic. This is not supposed to diminish the coverage of these victims, but rather to include the countless others who are victims of crime. In this case, there were multiple victims that match this description, and every crime student is well aware of this type of celebrity victimization in the media. When I first heard about this awful crime, I was reminded of Ted Bundy's spree of murder and sexual assault at Florida State University in 1978. Two women were killed and three others were brutally attacked and left injured while sleeping. The similarities are evident as both are the murders of college students with universities as the center of the crimes. Bundy had just escaped from prison for the second time and flew to Florida from Colorado. There was not yet any evidence linking him to the murders in Utah, Colorado, and Washington, but he starved himself to climb through the ceiling and escape. Bundy posed as a Florida State University college student with a fake identity and lived near campus for about a month. Unable to contain his urges, Bundy animalistically attacked the five women at the Chi Omega sorority house and managed to flee the scene without being caught. Ted Bundy was not yet national news, nor was this his usual M.O., so he was not considered. Less than a month later, Bundy murdered 12-year-old Kimberly Leach, who would be his final victim. A few days later, he was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle and tried to violently resist and flee. The Chi Omega murders are infamous for the brutality and relation to one of America's most notorious serial killers. And my initial and current instinct told me that the Idaho killings were conducted with Bundy in mind. A lot of adolescent and young adult boys and men who commit murder have historically idolized their predecessors and that is hypothetically characteristic of an accused murderer who is also studying crime. On the last podcast, I discussed the way that pop culture can twist the lore of famous killers into modern myth, which sometimes segues into glamorization when fact is presented with a fictional tone. Before this occurred with the Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix series, the Ted Bundy movie starring Zac Efron also opened this up for discussion. Although this particular criticism was mostly toward young girls who were not yet born for many years after Bundy's death and admired Zach Efron, a more extreme glamorization could easily occur with an aspiring killer determined to cause national grief and unrest. Furthermore, someone who was maybe not so lucky with women or otherwise socially awkward with a surplus of true crime studies could reasonably want to have that same type of notoriety as Bundy by committing the most horrific crime possible without years of career serial killing for which sources say charisma led to Bundy's death toll. Before a suspect was named, there were theories that one of the victims had a stalker. There was also a video circulating which appears to show a conflict between the roommates and another young male at a food truck the night of the murders. Unfortunately, the surviving roommates were also scrutinized by the public. Eerily and similar to the Chi Omega murders, one of the survivors saw the intruder that night, who she claims was masked. Although the killer could have been anywhere in the world in a month after the murders, the suspect ended up residing in our neighboring state of Pennsylvania, which is a horrifying thought. Rowan University, however, has some options to make students on campus take precautions and to feel safer. Rowan's transparency with crime occurring on campus are intended to keep students safe with text alerts and Clery Act compliance, which requires universities to publicly report campus crime data. This can be viewed on the page for Public Safety on Rowan's website, and students can call Public Safety if they ever feel unsafe. Everyone that I've had interactions with at Rowan's Public Safety deeply care about the Rowan community, and they will give you a ride if you're alone, or if it's late, or if you're unsure. I'm not sure if it is common knowledge that these non-emergency services are available, but I suggest that the Rowan community use them. It is not embarrassing to ask for help, especially if there is any chance of risking your safety. Of course, college students cannot be blamed for going out and letting their guard down, but keep in mind the general rules of not accepting drinks from strangers, not leaving a drink unattended, traveling with friends if possible, locking your doors, and not letting strangers into dorms, off-campus apartments, etc. Not all of these directly apply to the Idaho murders, but it is devastating to know that there are still predators out there who are capable of crimes to this capacity. And that concludes our crime coverage for this week. This has been The Rowan Report presents The True Crime Collective with Carly Murray.